I'm Jason Mitchell, sustainability strategist for Man Group. You're listening to Perspectives Towards a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Most of us are familiar with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. If you're not, the IPCC has proven incredibly effective in its ability to form a scientific consensus, one that ranges from geologists and meteorologists to oceanographers and climatologists. It's more than fair to say that this consensus has advanced our understanding of what climate change and climate risk represents. But what does that mean for the rest of us, the non-scientists? It's one thing to advocate for better environmental policies, but how do we go about teaching the next generation? How do we go about learning ourselves the skills that may prove pivotal in adapting to climate change? Well, universities and colleges are now addressing these questions by designing specialized curriculum and degree programs. In September 2016, for instance, Imperial College Business School established the Center for Climate Finance and Investment. The center supports critical research on climate adaptation strategies, and it develops investment-oriented approaches to solving climate problems in areas like clean energy, energy efficiency, and climate-resilient infrastructure. Centers like these are an encouraging sign that industry and markets recognize the need for climate solutions and are actively recruiting talent to fill those job opportunities. So stay tuned to hear from Charlie Donovan, director of Imperial College's Center for Climate Finance and Investment, about how leading educational institutions are responding to the research and investment needs around climate change. I'm here today with Charlie Donovan, Welcome to the show, Charlie. It's great to have you here. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Great. Look, to start out, could you give us a sense of maybe some of the current initiatives that you're working on right now? In the center, we really are focused on an investor's perspective on on the climate challenge. And specifically, that comes down to, is it a wise thing? Uh, Is it a rational thing to do to deploy substantial amounts of capital into things like clean energy and smart transportation And so a lot of what we're doing now is taking what are pretty conventional analytical tools within within finance and turning them around and saying, are these specific kinds of assets, how do they stack up in terms of risk and return in that framework? And so there's a number of things that we're looking at in terms of asset allocation and asset-specific financing related to this new and exciting and growing topic, uh, which encompasses all of the clean technologies uh, that, we're, that we're seeing coming into the market today. Fascinating. One of the things that's interesting about your background is that you've spent some time on the finance side. You've certainly spent a lot of time on the energy, specifically renewable energy side, before coming back into education and this role. How'd that happen? <laughs> what brought you here? <laughs> Well, I think that it was really out of an intellectual curiosity. I didn't expect to be uh, an academic. I, I, I loved business school myself, you know, but I didn't really see myself to be a professor. I think what happened, though, at some point was when I was working for BP and working on the what became the alternative energy platform within BP, we had this really recurring problem that it seemed like nobody could solve which is how do you finance a renewable energy business inside of an oil and gas super major? And so like most companies, you go and hire McKinsey and you get Citigroup to come in and do a piece of work. And nobody really seemed satisfied with that. And I think in my naivete, I raised my hand and said, well, maybe I'll go back to school and I'll I'll get the answer to this. 
And that was 10 years ago, and I still haven't gotten the answer. I've got a lot more <laughs> questions. But there was really just a general uh, point of curiosity that I haven't really satisfied for myself yet, which is how do you make this work? How do you transition an economy towards the financing of, a, of specific types of assets, which in a lot of ways aren't very attractive. You know, they're, they're capital intensive. They take a long time to pay back. They have some novel risks associated with them. The market doesn't quite understand them. And so it gets to be uh, an intellectual pursuit. And that really called me to come back to the university to do what I did in terms of earning a doctorate and now teaching and trying to collaboratively share that task with other younger people who are also fascinated by that challenge. If you look back at that question, you know, about how, how you finance these technologies um, from the private sector, do you think relative to where we were a decade ago when you were looking at this, for instance, that uh, we've come a lot closer? I mean, are you more optimistic or less optimistic? Well, much more optimistic, particularly with the technologies that have achieved cost competitiveness. I think that was a dream you know, when I started, that somehow solar energy would be cheaper than than coal in some markets. That seemed like you know, the front of a, of, a, of a magazine, Scientific American, you know, it didn't seem like something that you would see uh, on the cover of The Economist. So technological innovation has done so much that I would love to say that I saw it coming. I certainly didn't. I think there's a lot of people who have been wrong-footed by just how fast the economies of scale, particularly in solar, have, have been put in place and how cheap now renewable energy is. And um, yeah, that was that was a distant dream, but that has completely changed the dynamic of what we're looking at today. Wow. L let's go back to the Imperial program that you uh, that you manage. Give us a sense of of the course, you know, of the kind of uh, course load or, or subject material that mm -hmm. uh, the students are looking at. Well, the program you're talking about is an MSc uh, in climate change management and finance. It was put together just two years ago. It was a joint venture, if you will, between the business school here at Imperial and the Grantham Institute. And to be perfectly honest, there was a lot of skepticism at the outset. You know, would are there enough people out there that want to study this topic? Is this something that, that you would look to a business school to do? Uh, is this too niche of an area? And I think that it's really exceeded <laughs> by every stretch of the imagination, uh, those expectations. And we've had an amazing cohort. This is a second cohort that's coming in. Um, quite a range, some mature students, some sort of, as you would expect from MSCs, a couple, maybe a couple of years of experience after their bachelors. But the thing that really is in common is that they have a passion for changing the world, making a difference, and they want their careers to serve something that really excites them, which is the climate challenge and, and business-led solutions to it. In terms of curriculum, it begins to look a lot like an MBA. Uh, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna have, make an impact in the business world on on these issues, you need to understand strategy, you need to understand finance, you need to understand marketing and operations. So there's a core element of it, and then and then what we try to do is make sure that everything that is done has that lens put on it. So this is not in the abstract. Um, for as you would be in an MBA, people are going off to do consulting and banking and telecoms, whatever it is. Here, it's really clear that everybody has an underlying focus, which is in common. And so the way that we approach cases, the way that we approach activities, the way that we approach guest speakers has a kind of a unifying theme, which is getting them ready to go out and be that change that they're aspiring to be for themselves and, and to be in, in for the world. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I know when I did my MSc, 
there wasn't a program. This is at LSE. You know, it felt like people had studied this area, whether from a policy perspective or from an environmental economics perspective, it, it felt like a one-off um, where there wasn't really a unifying kind of force uh, with a mass of students um, per year. So I, I, it feels like a really unique opportunity. I mean, is that the case for really creating an interdisciplinary program in and of itself like, like you've done that genuinely that sits behind a business school and you know, a science school? Well, you know, interdisciplinary is tough, right? Because you, you have to be, have a certain amount of topic expertise in a number of things in order to pull that off. And I think at Imperial, we're lucky that there's a, it's a science and engineering university in, in first, and, first and foremost. So that, that gives you a bit of a head start. Uh, and we get attract a lot of engineers, let's say, to this program. Uh, but real interdisciplinary is, you know, if you're going to talk about the, the number of potential er- disciplines, academic disciplines that could come to bear on expertise in managing climate risk, that's, that's massive. And so um, sometimes we probably overuse that word interdisciplinary. We aspire to it. But it is, it is for a complex issue like climate change. Uh, the boundaries are, are really are really wide. So yeah, we, we, we try to, but I would say if we're clear about what interdisciplinary means so far, it's probably straddling what would be sort of pure science, physics, chemistry, with a lot of uh, engineering, so electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, those kinds of backgrounds. Um, and there's more that we could do to, to continue to expand that. Yeah. Do you find that there's still kind of a legacy bias to view this kind of education as... Um, more about you know, renewable energy, about sort of financing solar panels or wind, and that's it. Or, you know, to what degree do you try and make it more holistic in the sense of even outside of the renewable sector, emissions are everywhere. Let's try and work on sort of yeah, carbon market, you know, pricing models. Let's work on energy efficiency in a much broader sense. Mm. Well, I think it's probably part of that maturity that we're all getting about what a big issue this is. So where it was sort of something that would be nice to do and sort of optional to do, then of course you always had students who were going to go off and do things in CSR departments and they were going to do things that that didn't feel core to the company's survival. And and I think that's where it's changed and particularly in in the, the industry that's changed most for me, is, is, is the financial services industry. Because there has been so much increase in awareness over the past few years about how certain kinds of investments could fare very poorly under, under some climate scenarios, not just the physical realities of them, but the policies that would have to be developed in order to, to keep anywhere of a reasonable, of a stable climate into the future. The financial services industry has gotten that. And you can see very clearly people are, are making choices about where their money goes. So that's not just asset owners like pension funds, but large asset managers who are saying some very, very serious things about what they're expecting companies to do in order to be prepared. So with that kind of shift, things move. And then suddenly you have an interest in getting graduates on board who, who have more of a finance orientation and can you know speak that language, and it is above all starts to become an, a task of understanding the vocabulary that allows you to be understood and to make an impact in the boardroom yeah. when these issues come up. Is it a reflection of a lot of private sector job opportunities out there, or is it more kind of a reflection of a lot of academic opportunities maybe showing up as well? It's really interesting that you would ask because one would have thought that it would have been driven as an academic interest. And where, you know, strategically, I think that's how it came into being at Imperial was that this consolidates a lot of what is the work that's done here and we should have a program that reflects that. 
the early experience has kind of flipped that around, which is it's very, still very hard to publish interdisciplinary work on climate, particularly climate impacts on business or on, say, on the financial system. Um, but boy, we've had a great run with recruiters and, and, and the jobs that the students have been getting are, uh, I tell you, they make me envious as, as, as well. <laughs> that certainly wasn't available to me, you know, 20 years ago. So it feels like there is a big change ongoing. And that's, you know, again, the financial services industry, if you think about the banks, insurance, uh, the rating agencies who have become very aggressive in this space. The, there's just a lot going on and I think there's an enormous amount of opportunity and that has, I guess, some people are patting themselves on the back that this was the right thing to do because the engagement with with, with companies and recruiters specifically has been uh, really fantastic in the program. Yeah, I'd say even within finance, I mean, there's going to be a lot more momentum. You take the UK and the EU over the next couple of years, you know, this really interesting expansion in the in the term fiduciary duty. Mm. I mean, you know, historically it always used to mean, or it used to meant, uh, you know, optimizing returns for shareholders. Mm -hmm. And increasingly you've seen that expansion of that definition start to include, you know, environmental, social, and governance considerations. And now even more specifically, you know, looking at systemic issues like climate risk. Mm -hmm. and I think that's, that's going to be a really interesting thing to see that enter into uh, language that trustees, like you said, the pension funds, big asset owners, as well as managers, um, they're going to have to spend a lot more time mm. understanding systemic long-term mm -hmm. risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's what what makes my the teaching fun is that uh, ultimately you're talking about you get some pretty f core philosophical issues about how you know the society wants to operate, what license to operate it wants to give to companies and what the boundary of the responsibility of those companies is. You know, and there's from one extreme, it's that they should maintain compliance with law and whatever becomes law, then they should adapt to. And then there's another point of view is that as, as important stakeholders in society, they have, they have the obligation to lead on these issues. And you could say that on the climate issue, there are a number of companies who are uh, absolutely leaders in the space who are way out in front of governments with regards to what they're articulating as, as the way forward on these issues. So that makes it fun that you can be in a situation in which that concept of what a company is and what it's, what purpose it serves uh, has to be questioned. And, and, and there's legitimate debate about from, from people within the business community about, about ultimately what, what that should be. But it brings up a good question, which is, you know, the Imperial Climate Finance Center is fairly young, right? Mm. So why has it taken education so long to address this this issue or see this opportunity? Mm. Boy, I wish I had a good answer for that. <laughs> uh, I, I've personally been waiting a, a, a long time myself. And, and I think it comes down to the fact that, that environmental issues or the environment as a form of, of natural capital has always been sidelined as something that would be about business. It was just, you know, there's a number of ways we could probably cut that, but it has just taken a while, I think, for a maturity of the conversation in which people are not dismissed for, you know, with whatever kind of term you want to put it, that somehow to be concerned about the environment or to see the necessity of natural capital as a means for the economy to function as something that's not just about being green. Mm. It has to something to do with maybe a more holistic understanding of what resources there are, how one creates productivity, and ultimately what real risks become most manifest in, in the economy. And that's always been easy, we say, with energy. You know, we see now 
studies that have demonstrated how many of the of the recessions that the global economy has endured over the past 50 years, you know, deeply tied to the oil price. And so, so energy's always had a bit of a connection there. But I think when you get into things like the value of wetlands or um, coastal defenses, these, these just haven't been thought of as business issues, but clearly they are now. And, mm-hmm. and that stock of assets, which governments historically have been custodians of, now have crucial value in preventing what, what could be some of the worst impacts of climate change. Do you ever feel like that that sense of you know significance or emerging significance um, at times feels tenuous? And I'm speaking specifically about you know, Trump, for mm-hmm. instance, and some of the energy policies coming out, prioritizing mm. coal over renewable. Mm. Um, you know, it, it it feels certainly because we're not in the in the U.S., but you know, if you took a look over there. Um, do you feel the tide somewhat turning a little bit, or do you do you do you think that there's just too much momentum within education to to even give a, a you know second misgiving about it? Well, maybe you know that's there's a difference about the European attitudes towards some of this and American attitudes because of course you know being a newer country and having a lot more natural resources to exploit, there's always been an idea that you could just kind of move on to the next thing that there wasn't really conservation has always been a very strong concept in in American. Uh, political thought, but not necessarily in the way that we would think of it, as you've been alluding to. So one could be depressed. One could look at and see that, you know, there's a, in financial terms, there's a lot of asset stripping going on uh, in terms of some of the policies that are being articulated. But there has also been a very interesting shift in terms of uh, China specifically and the policies that China has been pursuing now which have been maybe, if you've been to China, you know that the environmental issues there are, are very serious, but the, the amount of investment that has occurred in clean technologies uh, over the past decade is just stunning. And, and you couldn't help but, but to think that there is has been a, a shift of power going on. And we've seen that to some degree now in the climate negotiations, but certainly amongst companies and what they're doing and what they're making money from these days. I don't think that you could come to a conclusion that that ignorance let's say, of, of how these factors contribute to sustainable economic growth. That's a winning strategy. Yeah. Do you see that in the student body? Is it reflected in the students from China? Um, this kind of complex interest that's driven by, you know, maybe climate-related issues, smog, for instance, in Beijing, but also these opportunities. Mm. Um, you know, the, the fact that China is developing the world's largest uh, carbon market, mm-hmm. you know, against the fact that the U.S. has really sort of declined, except at a state level, to, right. to do this. Well, what, you know, one of the classes I teach is about entrepreneurship in this in the clean technology space, which, you know, 10 years ago, you couldn't have had a class because most of them would, even in, in, in Europe or, or, or the U.S., would have been, um, a number would have been state-owned entities. You know, it's not that long ago that all power companies, all, all electric utilities would have been state-owned. So we see that most specifically now in China, right, where there has been no entrepreneurship. There's been a sort of intrapreneurship, let's say, or new ideas within state-run companies. But the emergence of some very big players now in China, I think, has sparked a lot of interest amongst Chinese students particularly, but students in a number of countries who just wouldn't have seen the idea of building something from scratch as at all a viable prospect or something that would have been reputable to do. You know, the idea of, of being an entrepreneur, even in some European countries, still lags a bit in terms of 
you know, some people want to, um, you know, government officials or they want to, there's certain things that being an entrepreneur has not had the allure. But there does seem to be a bit of a global phenomenon with that and definitely see that within students from all kinds of backgrounds that, that I didn't see that even five years ago. It's interesting. Let's talk about some of the great research that's coming out of the center in this area. Um, can you give us a, a sense on on the collaborative element between the Brevin um, Center as well as the Grantham Center and, and how you're working together and maybe, you know, even perhaps a preview of some of the work. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, so maybe to, to define a bit. So the Grantham Institute is a is uh, was set up by a gift from Jeremy Grantham, and that works across the college on, on all sorts of things related to climate science and policy. Um, the Brevin Howard Center, which is within the business school, uh, again, a gift from an alumni that set up uh, what has now become Europe's top quantitative finance group. Um, and really, we fit kind of somewhere as a bridge in between because what we see within, uh, despite all the in, a lot of interest, say, within the researchers at the Brevin Howard Center, is that it's very difficult still to make your mark as an academic as a scholar of the capital markets when looking at climate change. It's still just too niche of an issue. It does not yet, has not been demonstrated to move the markets. Uh, and that's what you need to do if you want to study that phenomenon. And then conversely, you know, a lot of great researchers who are looking at climate change don't speak the language of, of finance and investment. And so translating what they do into kind of bottom line impacts has been challenging. So we're trying to do uh, a bit of both. And we certainly draw on on folks from both of those um, places within Imperial. But there's a lot of new collaborations that we're opening up, uh, up as well. And I think the theme all the time in that is what's the investor's perspective? And it's the private sector investor's perspective. And when we talk about climate finance, that's where our take on it is a bit different because it's a term that's usually been connotated around what governments would do in order to stimulate investment or what governments would do in order to minimize risks. And here we take as a kind of a backdrop that there's a lot of privatization going on across all industries. And increasingly, governments are making rules and, and encouraging and prodding, but they're looking to the private sector to actually put the money on the table. And so that requires a shift of thinking, and it requires a shift that hopefully we're responding to in terms of taking those questions and answering them from that perspective. Hmm. What do you find is, are some of the most compelling ideas right now coming out of research? Is it Does it tend to be markets-related or infrastructure-related? Is it uh, better pricing models mm. for you know, environmental externalities? Mm. Uh, one of the things that we're pursuing a lot is this idea about if you're going to ask, ask private sector investors to hold these kinds of assets, and this could be, let's just to make it easy, let's say solar energy projects, what's the best way for them to do that? And is that for them to be held in listed vehicles on the stock market? Or is it better for unlisted infrastructure funds to hold those? And, and to, how do you sort of match the duration of these projects, the kind of the unique risks? So we have a paper coming out uh, within the next month that's looking at the experience in the unlisted and listed space and uh, using a measure called the Sharpe Ratio to get a concise measure of what has been the risk-adjusted return from, from those two. Uh, and it's fascinating. It's fascinating to see that at least for these things called yield codes, which are publicly listed vehicles holding operational renewable energy assets, over the past three years, those have performed better 
on a risk-adjusted basis than the broad market, so the S&P 500, but as well as specialized indices that would be, say, around utilities or energy. Um, so there's a good argument that the public markets can be a big part of this solution, whereas you know people have, I think, with some lazy thinking, have come to think that it's that it's too hard or there's a lot of risk. Um, so really, we're trying to take build the evidence base, and that happens little by little. But a lot of what we're trying to tap into right now is that for the investors that want to do more, what's the most efficient way uh, to hold these kinds of assets? It's a it's very good timing then. It sounds like because we're obviously in the UK, we've had the Green Investment Bank. Mm -hmm. Right now, the UK government's working on the Green Growth Initiative mm -hmm. uh, or Green Growth Strategy, um, which is about trying to un better understand the incentives and structures with which to bring in investors into yield codes or or other kind of green strategies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a, and there's a range of opportunities. You know, publicly listed equities, fixed income. There's a whole set of interesting challenges around that, the green bond market, whether that's for real or whether that's a real lever for more uh, investment alternatives, even hedge funds, uh, unlisted. I mean, there's a number of things that can have some connection point here. And for a diversified investor, he or she has the opportunity to come at it in, in a number of ways. So we, we're trying to build up that experience of what have people done so far, what's proven to work, and hopefully that provides some, some insight on what more can be done. Hmm. Uh, to sum up, I mean, what would you say is the really unique element of, of the Climate Finance Center relative to other organizations? And I don't want to sort of make it competitive, but, you know, in the sense of, uh, uh, you know, you sort of sit in an inst interesting intersection between the Brevin Howard Center, the Grantham mm -hmm. uh, Center, uh, as well as the business school and one of the world's top science schools. It seems pretty compelling. Well, I hope so. And um, it's really been it's been a great thrill for me to, to lead this initiative. If there's one differentiator, and there are a number of great universities around the world that have, have, have done great work in this space, I think what we've done is, is by parking the center in the business school, we've said that it's moved beyond an issue of economics. It's moved on beyond an issue of environmental science. And this is really a matter of business and the impacts and the opportunities sit increasingly with businesses. So we've tried to take that approach and, and by, by putting the center in the business school and, and drawing upon business school faculty, we've tried to be relevant. And that's, mm. boy, it sounds easy, but it's a lot of academics. It's very hard not to get distracted by, you know, what the journals are writing, what the, the academic conferences, what, what that means. But we've had a great opportunity here to be relevant to investors and the, and the questions that they're asking and the horizons that they're looking down in terms of the opportunities that they can exploit from this, not just mitigating the risks that are becoming quite obvious to them. Great. Well, look, it's been fascinating to hear about why it's so critical for education, particularly postgraduate programs like Imperials, to begin formally addressing the finance and investment challenges of climate change. So I'd like to thank you for your time and views today. It's been great. Again, I'm Jason Mitchell, sustainability strategist at Man Group, here today with Charlie Donovan, director of the Center for Climate Finance and Investment at Imperial College Business School. Many thanks for joining us on Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. I'm Jason Mitchell, sustainability strategist at Man Group. Thanks for joining us, and special thanks to everyone that helped produce this show.
To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash responsible dash investment or look for us on iTunes.